Section 13 of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Jurisprudence by John Salmon. Section 13. Chapter 9. Precedent. Part 1. Section 61. The Authority of Precedents. The importance of judicial precedents has always been a distinguishing characteristic of English law. The great body of the common or unwritten law is almost entirely the product of decided cases, accumulated in an immense series of reports extending backwards, with scarcely a break, to the reign of Edward I at the close of the 13th century. Orthodox legal theory, indeed, long professed to regard the common law as customary law, and judicial decisions as merely evidence of custom and of the law derived therefrom. This, however, was never much better than an admitted fiction. In practice, if not in theory, the common law in England has been created by the decisions of English judges. Neither Roman law, however, nor any of those modern systems which are founded upon it, allows any such place or authority to precedent. They allow to it no further or other influence than that which is possessed by any other expression of expert legal opinion. A book of reports and a textbook are on the same level. They are both evidences of the law. They are both instruments for the persuasion of judges, but neither of them is anything more. English law, on the other hand, draws a sharp distinction between them. A judicial precedent speaks in England with authority. It is not merely evidence of the law, but a source of it, and the courts are bound to follow the law that is so established. It seems clear that we must attribute this feature of English law to the peculiarly powerful and authoritative position which has been at all times occupied by English judges. From the earliest times, the judges of the king's courts have been a small and compact body of legal experts. They have worked together in harmony, imposing their own views of law and justice upon the whole realm, and establishing thereby a single homogeneous system of common law. Of this system, they were the creators and authoritative interpreters, and they did their work with little interference, either from local custom or from legislation. The centralization and concentration of the administration of justice in the royal courts gave to the royal judges a power and prestige which would have been unattainable on any other system. The authority of precedence was great in England because of the power, the skill, and the professional reputation of the judges who made them. In England, the bench has always given law to the bar. In Rome, it was the other way about for in rome there was no permanent body of professional judges capable of doing the work that has been done for centuries in england by the royal courts section sixty two declaratory and original precedents in proceeding to consider the various kinds of precedents and the methods of their operation we have in the first place to distinguish between those decisions which are creative of the law and those which are merely declaratory of it. A declaratory precedent is one which is merely the application of an already existing rule of law. An original precedent is one which creates and applies a new rule. 
In the former case, the rule is applied because it is already law. In the latter case, it is law for the future because it is now applied. In any well-developed system such as that of modern England, declaratory precedents are far more numerous than those of the other class, for on most points the law is already settled, and judicial decisions are therefore commonly mere declarations of pre-existing principles. Original precedents, however, though fewer in number, are greater in importance, for they alone develop the law. The others leave it as it was, and their only use is to serve as good evidence of it for the future. Unless required for this purpose, a merely declaratory decision is not perpetuated as an authority in the law reports. When the law is already sufficiently well evidenced, as when it is embodied in a statute, or set forth with fullness and clearness in some comparatively modern case, the reporting of declaratory decisions is merely a needless addition to the great bulk of our case law. It must be understood, however, that a declaratory precedent is just as truly a source of law as is one belonging to the other class. The legal authority of each is exactly the same. Speaking generally, the authority and legal validity of a precedent do not depend on whether it is or is not an accurate statement of previously existing law. Whether it is or is not, it may establish as law for the future that which it now declares and applies as law. The distinction between the two kinds turns solely on their relation to the law of the past and not at all on their relation to that of the future. A declaratory precedent, like a declaratory statute, is a source of law, though it is not a source of new law. Here, as elsewhere, the mere fact that two sources overlap and that the same legal principle is established by both of them, does not deprive either of them of its true nature as a legal source. Each remains an independent and self-sufficient basis of the rule. We have already referred to the old theory that the common law is customary, not case law. This doctrine may be expressed by saying that according to it all precedents are declaratory merely, and that their original operation is not recognized by the law of England. Thus Hale says in his History of the Common Law, quote, It is true the decisions of courts of justice, though by virtue of the laws of this realm they do bind as a law between the parties thereto, as to the particular case in question, till reversed by error or attaint, yet they do not make a law properly so called, for that only the king and parliament can do. Yet they have a great weight and authority in expounding, declaring, and publishing what the law of this kingdom is, especially when such decisions hold a consonancy and congruity with resolutions and decisions of former times. End of quote. Hale, however, is evidently troubled in mind as to the true position of precedent, and as to the sufficiency of the declaratory theory thus set forth by him. For elsewhere he tells us, inconsistently, that there are three sources of English law, namely, one, custom, two, the authority of Parliament, and three, quote, the judicial decisions of courts of justice consonant to one another in the series and succession of time, end of quote. In the Court of Chancery, this declaratory theory never prevailed, nor indeed could it, having regard to the known history of the system of equity administered by that court. There could be no pretense that the principles of equity were founded either in custom or legislation, for it was a perfectly obvious fact 
that they had their origin in judicial decisions. The judgment of each chancellor made law for himself and his successors. Quote, it must not be forgotten, says Sir George Jessel, that the rules of courts of equity are not, like the rules of the common law, supposed to have been established from time immemorial. It is perfectly well known that they have been established from time to time, altered, improved, and refined from time to time. In many cases, we know the names of the chancellors who invented them. No doubt they were invented for the purpose of securing the better administration of justice, but still, they were invented. End of quote. Both at law and in equity, however, the declaratory theory must be totally rejected if we are to attain to any sound analysis and explanation of the true operation of judicial decisions. We must admit openly that precedents make law as well as declare it. We must admit further that this effect is not merely accidental and indirect, the result of judicial error in the interpretation and authoritative declaration of the law. Doubtless judges have many times altered the law while endeavoring in good faith to declare it, but we must recognize a distinct law-creating power vested in them and openly and lawfully exercised. Original precedents are the outcome of the intentional exercise by the courts of their privilege of developing the law at the same time that they administer it. Section 63. Authoritative and Persuasive Precedents Decisions are further divisible into two classes, which may be distinguished as authoritative and persuasive. These two differ in respect of the kind of influence which they exercise upon the future course of the administration of justice. An authoritative precedent is one which judges must follow whether they approve of it or not. It is binding upon them and excludes their judicial discretion for the future. A persuasive precedent is one which the judges are under no obligation to follow, but which they will take into consideration and to which they will attach such weight as it seems to them to deserve. It depends for its influence upon its own merits, not upon any legal claim which it has to recognition. In other words, authoritative precedents are legal sources of law, while persuasive precedents are merely historical. The former establish law in pursuance of a definite rule of law which confers upon them that effect, while the latter, if they succeed in establishing law at all, do so indirectly through serving as the historical ground of some later authoritative precedent. In themselves, they have no legal force or effect. The authoritative precedents recognized by English law are the decisions of the superior courts of justice in England. The chief classes of persuasive precedents are the following. 1. Foreign judgments, and more especially those of American courts. 2. The decisions of superior courts in other portions of the British Empire, for example, the Irish courts. 3. The judgments of the Privy Council when sitting as the final court of appeal from the colonies. 4. Judicial dicta, that is to say, statements of law which go beyond the occasion and lay down a rule that is irrelevant or unnecessary for the purpose in hand. We shall see later that the authoritative influence of precedents does not extend to such a bitter dicta, but they are not equally destitute of persuasive efficacy. Footnote. Persuasive efficacy, similar in kind, though much less in degree, is attributed by our courts to the civil law 
and to the opinions of the commentators upon it, also to English and American textbooks of the better sort. End of footnote. Section 64. The Absolute and Conditional Authority of Precedents. Authoritative precedents are of two kinds, for their authority is either absolute or conditional. In the former case, the decision is absolutely binding and must be followed without question, however unreasonable or erroneous it may be considered to be. It has a legal claim to implicit and unquestioning obedience, where on the other hand, a precedent possesses merely conditional authority. The courts possess a certain limited power of disregarding it. In all ordinary cases, it is binding, but there is one special case in which its authority may be lawfully denied. It may be overruled or dissented from when it is not merely wrong, but so clearly and seriously wrong that its reversal is demanded in the interests of the sound administration of justice. Otherwise, it must be followed, even though the court which follows it is persuaded that it is erroneous or unreasonable. The full significance of this rule will require further consideration shortly. In the meantime, it is necessary to state what classes of decisions are recognized by English law as absolutely and what as merely conditionally authoritative. Absolute authority exists in the following cases. 1. Every court is absolutely bound by the decisions of all courts superior to itself. A court of first instance cannot question a decision of the Court of Appeal, nor can the Court of Appeal refuse to follow the judgments of the House of Lords. 2. The House of Lords is absolutely bound by its own decisions. Quote, a decision of this house once given upon a point of law is conclusive upon this house afterwards, and it is impossible to raise that question again as if it was res integra and could be re-argued, and so the house be asked to reverse its own decision. End of quote. 3. The Court of Appeal is, it would seem, absolutely bound by its own decisions and by those of older courts of coordinate authority, for example, the Court of Exchequer Chamber. In all other cases save these three, it would seem that the authority of precedence is merely conditional. It is to be noticed, however, that the force of a decision depends not merely on the court by which it is given, but also on the court in which it is cited. Its authority may be absolute in one court and merely conditional in another. A decision of the Court of Appeal is absolutely binding on a court of first instance, but is only conditionally binding upon the House of Lords. Section 65. The Disregard of a Precedent. In order that a court may be justified in disregarding a conditionally authoritative precedent, two conditions must be fulfilled. In the first place, the decision must, in the opinion of the court in which it is cited, be a wrong decision, and it is wrong in two distinct cases, first, when it is contrary to law, and secondly, when it is contrary to reason. It is wrong as contrary to law when there is already in existence an established rule of law on the point in question, and the decision fails to conform to it. When the law is already settled, the sole right and duty of the judges is to declare and apply it. A precedent must be declaratory whenever it can be, that is to say, whenever there is any law to declare. But in the second place, a decision may be wrong as being contrary to reason. When there is no settled law to declare and follow, the courts may make law for the occasion. In so doing, it is their duty to follow reason, and so far as they fail to do so, 
their decisions are wrong, and the principles involved in them are of defective authority. Unreasonableness is one of the vices of a precedent, no less than of a custom, and of certain forms of subordinate legislation. It is not enough, however, that a decision should be contrary to law or reason, for there is a second condition to be fulfilled before the courts are entitled to reject it. If the first condition were the only one, a conditionally authoritative precedent would differ in nothing from one which is merely persuasive. In each case, the precedent would be effective only so far as its own intrinsic merits commended it to the minds of successive judges. But where a decision is authoritative, it is not enough that the court to which it is cited should be of opinion that it is wrong. It is necessary, in innumerable cases, to give effect to precedents notwithstanding that opinion. It does not follow that a principle once established should be reversed simply because it is not as perfect and rational as it ought to be. It is often more important that the law should be certain than that it should be ideally perfect. These two requirements are, to a great extent, inconsistent with each other, and we must often choose between them. Whenever a decision is departed from, the certainty of the law is sacrificed to its rational development, and the evils of the uncertainty thus produced may far outweigh the very trifling benefit to be derived from the correction of the erroneous doctrine. The precedent, while it stood unreversed, may have been counted on in numerous cases as definitely establishing the law. Valuable property may have been dealt within reliance on it. Important contracts may have been made on the strength of it. It may have become, to a great extent, a basis of expectation and the ground of mutual dealings. Justice may therefore imperatively require that the decision, though founded in error, shall stand inviolate nonetheless. Communis error facit jus. Footnote. It is to be remembered that the overruling of a precedent has a retrospective operation. In this respect, it is very different from the repeal or alteration of a statute. End of footnote. Quote, it is better, said Lord Eldon, that the law should be certain than that every judge should speculate upon improvements in it. End of quote. It follows from this that, other things being equal, a precedent acquires added authority from the lapse of time. The longer it is stood unquestioned and unreversed, the more harm in the way of uncertainty and the disappointment of reasonable expectations will result from its reversal. A decision which might be lawfully overruled without hesitation while yet new may, after the lapse of a number of years, acquire such increased strength as to be practically of absolute and no longer of merely conditional authority. This effect of lapse of time has repeatedly received judicial recognition. Quote, Viewed simply as the decision of a court of first instance, the authority of this case, notwithstanding the respect due to the judges who decided it, is not binding upon us, but viewed in its character and practical results, it is one of a class of decisions which acquire a weight and effect beyond that which attaches to the relative position of the court from which they proceed. It constitutes an authority which, after it has stood for so long a period unchallenged, should not, in the interests of public convenience, and having regard to the protection of private rights, be overruled by this court except upon very special considerations. For twelve years and upwards, the case has continued unshaken by any judicial decision or criticism. End of quote. Quote, when an old decided case has made the law on a particular subject, 
the court of appeal ought not to interfere with it because people have considered it as establishing the law and have acted upon it end of quote. the statement that a precedent gains in authority with age must be read subject to an important qualification up to a certain point a human being grows in strength as he grows in age but this is true only within narrow limits so with the authority of judicial decisions a moderate lapse of time will give added vigor to a precedent but after a still longer time the opposite effect may be produced not indeed directly but indirectly through the accidental conflict of the ancient and perhaps partially forgotten principle with later decisions without having been expressly overruled or intentionally departed from it may become in course of time no longer really consistent with the course of judicial decision in this way the tooth of time will eat away an ancient precedent and gradually deprive it of all its authority the law becomes animated by a different spirit and assumes a different course and the older decisions become obsolete and inoperative to sum the matter up we may say that to justify the disregard of a conditionally authoritative precedent it must be erroneous either in law or in reason and the circumstances of the case must not be such as to make applicable the maxim communis error facit jus the defective decision must not by the lapse of time or otherwise have acquired such added authority as to give it a title to permanent recognition notwithstanding the vices of its origin the disregard of a precedent assumes two distinct forms for the court to which it is cited may either overrule it or merely refuse to follow it overruling is an act of superior jurisdiction a precedent overruled is definitely and formally deprived of all authority it becomes null and void like a repealed statute and a new principle is authoritatively substituted for the old a refusal to follow a precedent on the other hand is an act of coordinate not of superior jurisdiction two courts of equal authority have no power to overrule each other's decisions where a precedent is merely not followed the result is not that the later authority is substituted for the earlier but that the two stand side by side conflicting with each other the legal antinomy thus produced must be solved by the act of a higher authority which will in due time decide between the two competing precedents formally overruling one of them and sanctioning the other as good law in the meantime the matter remains at large and the law uncertain end of section thirteen recording by colleen mcmahon